So when you call somebody in, you're saying what I value most is my relationship with you. I value my connection to you. I value you learning more about me. So when you have offended me and there is value and investment in a relationship with you, the fact that you've offended me says, wow, we're not as close as I thought we were. Or wow, there's something about my story that you don't know. That's Kimberly Yolanda Williams. And this is, well, That Went Sideways, a podcast that serves as a resource to help people have healthy, respectful communication. We present a diversity of ideas, tools, and techniques to help you transform conflict in relationships of all kinds. On this episode, we talk with Kimberly Yolanda Williams about engaging across difference. She is an educator, a diversity, equity, and inclusion administrator and consultant, and the author of the book, Dear White Woman, Please Come Home. I'm Sam Fuqua, co-host of the program with Alexis Miles. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Sam. And we're so pleased to have Kimberly Yolanda Williams with us as our guest for this episode of Well, That Went Sideways. Hello. Hi, Sam. Hi, Alexis. It's great to be with y'all. Your book, Dear White Woman, Please Come Home, there's an interesting story, I think, about what prompted you to write it. Can you share that with us? Yeah. So I was angry. I was angry. Um, I will tell you, so my publisher, I worked with Debbie Irving, the author of Waking Up White, to publish Dear White Woman, Please Come Home. And we had been friends for years before the book was even an idea. So whenever she was in town giving a workshop or something like that, we would try, my partner and I would try to support her work. And so for my birthday, my partner surprised me by taking me to one of Debbie's events. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know. Um, and it was a workshop that was designed specifically for white women and black women to come together, to heal, to connect, to share truths with, truths with one another. And uh, the last activity of the day, it was a full day workshop. The last activity of the day really got me uh, fired up. And it was where, this was pre-COVID, of course, where two people sat knee to knee, face to face, and the Black woman had the opportunity to share a truth. And it sounded something like this. I didn't tell you, fill in the blank, and here's why. Fill in the blank, right? And then the white woman had the opportunity to respond and, and say, thank you for sharing that truth with me and you know, so forth and so on. And white woman after white woman after white woman responded to the truths that they heard. Oftentimes a black woman would say, I didn't share it because I didn't think you cared. And the white woman would oftentimes, I want to say nine out of 10 of them said, whoa, 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 what do you mean? I, I didn't care. How could I care if I didn't even know? I didn't know. And I thought to myself, I start every time I heard one of them say, I didn't know, I just felt the fire in my belly get hotter and hotter and hotter. And so when I left that workshop or at the end of the day, when I left and we headed home, I was, I was fuming and I got home and I got into my this chair at our, our uh, kitchen island. And I said to my partner, I said, listen, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to write it directly to white women so that they can never again say they didn't know. Because I think, you know, at first I was like, they're lying. How can they not know? They're on YouTube. It's on the news. It's on Facebook. It's on, you know, Instagram. And I, and I thought, wait a minute. 
okay, but growing up as a black girl, I was taught with, within my own family, within my own community, within my school, that you don't tell white people the truth because the consequences of telling white people the truth might mean loss of life, might mean loss of career, might mean loss of um, property, might mean damage to your property. It might mean um, that your physical safety uh, for you, you and your family is, is at risk. And so I have been trained not to tell the truth too. And so I thought, okay, I'm risking a lot by doing this. I'm breaking the rules that we have because if we're gonna move forward, if we're actually gonna move forward in authentic relationships and white people don't actually know the truth, how can we ever actually and possibly be in authentic relationships if they don't know the unfiltered truth? And if we're not willing to go to the table to tell them the truth, how can we then continue to try to hold them accountable for things that offend us? And so, I said, I'm writing this book and, and that was four and a half, five years ago now when I sat at the kitchen island and I started writing because I was angry. I was angry. So it wasn't that the white women in the workshop were feigning ignorance. It was that they may have actually not known and that you as a black woman may have been self-censoring. Is that an apt description? Or Yeah, absolutely. That I, I had... That I wasn't telling the truth. And, and Sam, it's funny because when people, when I work with organizations or I give workshops or the question always is, okay, what is this truth you want to tell me? And, you know, I think people are always thinking so deep, like what hidden secret is Kim not telling me? But let's start with the most basic lie that, that we as a society, we tell every day, all day long. When somebody walks past you and they say, hey, Sam, how are you? Right. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like your your dog just had a bed appointment. Like your car was just like somebody like keyed your car. Like, you know, you might have had a flat tire on the way to work. I mean, I myself just before getting on this call was was just came from a doctor's appointment and was put in a, a fracture boot today or a walking boot. So so but if you ask me, hey, Kim, how are, how's it going? I would probably say I'm fine, even though I'm not. I'm sitting here and and I'm like, oh, this thing is hot and it's uncomfortable and I need to be in this for the next few weeks. So that's one of the most basic lies that we tell and we tell it even more, like it's an even more turned up lie when we're talking. Um, I know for me, uh, the black women that I grew up with and the black women that are part of my life, when they're speaking to white people, that's, it's an even bigger lie because you add, you sprinkle on this tone of voice that's not your normal tone. When they hey Kim, how are you? Great, how are you? You know, it's, that's not my real voice. Like the voice that I'm speaking to you and right now is my real voice. But we've been trained to code switch so that we make sure that um, two things, white people stay comfortable and that white people see us as one of the good ones, one of the educated ones, one of the safe black people to be around. And how do we ever move forward into authentic relationships if my authentic self is not even in the room? <laughs> And you hit on a really good point there, because it seems that in your entire book, what you're talking about is authentic relationships and the power and resilience of authentic relationships. So you mentioned Debbie Irving mm -hmm. earlier that you're friends and she wrote the foreword of your book. Yes. And she said something to the fact that you have a rare ability to meet white women where they are and put mm -hmm. them forward. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what it is in you that allows you to meet people who don't know things that we think they should know mm -hmm. because it's so visible to us. 
mm-hmm. as women. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's almost, it's hard to imagine that they can't look at us and know that there is a different reality for us. So what right. is it in you that gives you that capacity to meet people where they mm-hmm. are and then mm-hmm. push them forward? Yeah, I would say, so this is something that I love. I love this question because it's something that I love to talk about. Had you talked to me 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't be having the same conversation or come from the same viewpoint. But um, I like to share with people that I have had several encounters in my life. And when I say encounters, I, I teach workshops about encounters. And I feel like an encounter is something, it's an event that happens directly to you or to someone you love that forces you to see, feel, or experience discrimination in a way that your privilege previously prevented. And so one of my most life-shattering and life-changing encounters um, was the fact that I woke up one day in 2016 and I come from the dance world. So I spent most of my days and afternoons dancing anywhere from two to four hours a day. That was normal for me. And I was a dance coach and I woke up I, from one day to the next, I woke up and I couldn't walk. And I, you know, when I first put my feet on the ground and fully expected to get from my bed to the bathroom um, and I fell to the floor, I thought maybe I'm getting older. Maybe I just need to shake it off and, and try again. And I tried again and I fell to the floor and I remember just the panic that flooded my entire being, um, that nothing had happened to me. I had, you know, people, the question again and again was, you know, what happened? And there was nothing that happened. I went from one day to the next and all of a sudden I was dumped into the world of people with disabilities and all of the injustices that had you asked me, you know, a week before this happened, I would have told you this country does a great job taking care of people who live with disabilities. I mean, I grew up in a home with a sister, an older sister who was born mentally disabled. So I definitely, I saw all of the resources that my family uh, was able to have access to for her. So I definitely thought that the government did a great job of caring for people with disabilities. And, and then I became one of those people. And I, and my disability, I mean, today you can see it, but most days you can't even see my disability because I live with it every day silently. So I, to the average person, I, I don't look disabled, look, just, I put quotes around that. And I realized that first of all, the way people treat me, they treat me as if I'm able-bodied. They approach me as if I'm able-bodied. They invite me to do activities every day that I can't do. Um, They invite me on trips that I can't go on. I mean, there's there's this whole life that comes with living with a physical disability. And yet my disability does not impact my life enough that the government sees me as disabled. So even though it impacts my daily life every day, it doesn't impact it enough that the government would classify me as disabled. So, um, and so I think about all of the things that my eyes were open to when I was from one day to the next, able-bodied to someone living with a disability. I didn't know how I was going to get around. I didn't know how I was going to get to the hospital. I needed to go to the hospital. Obviously I couldn't walk, but I couldn't get to my car. I didn't know all of a sudden I, to get to food where I used to eat or at this place where I was living, I needed to go downstairs. I could no longer walk down the stairs. I mean, all of a sudden I 
think about every single thing I did. I could no longer shower. I mean, I couldn't take a, I could no longer shower by myself. Like, I mean, all of these things that I just had never thought about. And Alexis, I hope you laugh at this. I remember um, one of the most ridiculous moments. I mean, because when this happened, I ended up being living life on one leg for nearly two years. Okay. So, and, and I was, uh, for a long time, I was on wheels. So I went, I remember going, wheeling myself into a handicapped bathroom stall and the toilet was on, you know, and the stall is larger and the toilet was on one side of the stall and the toilet paper was on the other side of the stall. And I just remember sitting in there, like, this was not a person with a disability that designed this bathroom, an able-bodied person designed this because it didn't even make sense. Why was the toilet paper on? And so all of a sudden I started to find compassion because that we're, we're having a conversation about being able-bodied versus um, someone having a disability. I started to have compassion for people from other groups, right? We can turn this conversation into race. We can turn it into gender. We can, if you have not had an encounter and been forced to look, to take a deep look without flinching or looking away at the issues that face other communities that you don't belong to, you're always gonna need your, to whatever the government or your family or your church or your extended family or your, your colleagues have taught you to believe. And I would have been, you could not have paid me to say that there were not enough handicapped spaces in the parking lot at the grocery store. And now that I live every, you know, my handicap passes in my mirror right now, uh, you know, like, and, and now when I go to a place and I see only one handicapped parking space, I notice it right away because I belong to that group. And I have to question, why would you only have one space? You know, and so if you don't belong to it, it's like someone removing a, you've been going through the world with a blindfold and it's because you haven't had to see it. But when you remove that blindfold and you see all of the daily injustices as small as right? Because we talk about injustices and we want to go straight to George Floyd, right? <laughs> but when, we, when you think about the fact that the toilet paper in a bathroom stall is not on the same side as a toilet, that is a daily injustice, something as simple as toilet paper. And so I, I want, to, want to ask the world to intentionally remove that blindfold and not because George Floyd has been killed or not because you know something huge in the media has happened, but because of the small daily things that are in my book that are happening because those are the things that lead to that death by a thousand cuts like uh, feeling or experience. And so I try to meet people where they are because I don't expect them to readily see. I don't expect them to readily see because there I was walking through the world as someone that could park anywhere, walk anywhere, dance, leap, run, jump. And now I, I move through the world very differently. And when I hear you say that, part of what I hear is we all, we have something that obstructs our ability to see certain realities. 100%. And, and so there is no shame, no blame. Exactly. And you, and you use the word in your book, interrogate a lot. And mm -hmm. I like that, that mm -hmm. rather than shame, blame, judge, mm -hmm. um, interrogate, ask yes. why. Yes. Um, and, and use curiosity. Yes, yes. And you also use the word heart a lot in your mm -hmm. book, headspace versus mm -hmm. heart space. Mm -hmm. And something else you said that really got my interest was the community we live in 
and also the community we think in. So mm -hmm. can you talk more about that and how those kinds of spaces, heart space, the community mm -hmm. we think in, relate to building community across difference? I will tell you, and, and that's part of why I, or the feedback that I've received is that my book is super unique because the approach is so different. Um, it's my job to read a lot of the DEI books that are out there, right? I'm a DEI director, so I do this work all day, every day. And so part of that, that responsibility is reading a lot. Um, and so many of those books are, are wonderful books and they, are, and they speak to your mind. They speak to your mind. They're written from a scholarly point of view. There's a lot of data, there's a lot of charts, there's a lot of statistics. And with that, we are able to disconnect ourselves from the experiences on the ground that those numbers represent. And so this book is about showing you how your, your neighbor, how you're possibly offending your neighbor or even your best friend, even your, your and I, put, I have the quotes around that because if the person is your best friend and you're offending them and you don't realize you're offending them, are they your best friend? You know, and so I've tried to pull on the heartstrings, right? Because when when you start moving from a place of that's that's so and so with the head sheet on, you know, the sheets on the hoods on their heads with the the fire torches and the you know chanting this or chanting that, to this could be me, and this could be my neighbor, this could be my in law, this could be my uh, my child's teacher at school, this could be you know. When you move from that to that heart space, when you find the human connection, you cannot turn away. You can turn away from a statistic. You can turn away from a chart. But when you attach a human being to the end of that, you cannot turn away. So it moves you from a headspace thinking about this. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say to someone when I say, hey, how do you feel about this, this, and this? Well, Kim, you know, I think this, 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 and this. I said, that's funny because I asked you how you feel. And you responded, I think. And they're like, oh, you know, I don't wait. I don't know how I feel. I'm like, and I got time. I'm, will, I'm willing to wait to hear how you feel because I don't want to know what you think. What we think, if we have not interrogated it, is what comes up for us automatically based on our socialization. What neighborhood did you grow up in? What state, what city, what religion, what, um, what community, what county? I'm from Washington, DC, so that there we talk about counties a lot. You know, what, what, uh, what college did you go to? What uh, political party are you affiliated with? All of those things produce what we think but it is human interaction and relationship that produce what we feel. Last summer, somebody said to me, it doesn't matter what you feel. You, it's all about logic and what you think. And I was like, wow, you and I are not gonna be able to talk about this <laughs> because, right? And so, and that's what allows you to disconnect from the humanity that is in what you see on the news. And, and what happens when you have that encounter right? Is you then are forced, you either bury it deep inside you and you move on with life because if we were to unearth and interrogate what we've been taught to think and believe, it is very overwhelming. It's very overwhelming. Um, but when you, again, I keep reinforcing this, right? I sound like a broken record. When you attach a human being or a human experience to the end of the story that you're reading or the statistic, you, you're forced 
Like I, again, when I woke up and couldn't walk, I was forced to, to interrogate everything that I believed about how people with disabilities were treated in this country. I was, I was forced to reckon with that. And it was overwhelming. I spent many days just weeping, sitting, sitting there, unable to go anywhere, Alexis. <laughs> sitting there, just like, I can't believe this is folks' reality every day. Every day for years and years and decades and decades and decades of their lives. And when people get that, it is overwhelming, but it's, they start to move through the world differently. And then you find these blessed communities of humanists or um, humanitarians that are able to see beyond their political party or their uh, neighborhood or their, their uh, religion. I grew up believing that Muslims were evil and were going to hell. I was taught that directly. And I remember the first time I became friends with a Muslim, everything that I had been taught was all of a sudden wrong. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I had to interrogate what I had been taught to believe, and I had to make the conscious choice to set it aside and say, I no longer believe this, and I will no longer live this way, right? And that's what getting us to that beloved, that beloved circle of humanity is what this book is about. One thing you said a bit ago, you talked about uh, insulting or offending someone without realizing you did that. And the phrase, the phrase that we use the last few years for that, I think, is microaggression. When that happens, do you, do you try to respond in a way that is authentic and creates an understanding? Or is it more like, oh, this isn't worth my time? Depends on the situation. And, and most of the time when we use, when we throw around these buzzwords like microaggression and racism and sexism and homophobia, and I'm all for using those words in um, teaching settings, right? Um, you're learning, you're learning about what's happening on a national and a global stage. I'm all for using that vocabulary. But when I get into workshops and healing circles with organizations or um, when folks bring me in to spend time with the people in their organization, we are in circles of healing. And so this is what I say, a microaggression, right? Generally is an outward reflection of inward bias, whether that's something that's being said or something that's done. And most of the time by its very nature, we are not aware of our biases. We just aren't. It's the car that's in your blind spot, right? And thankfully, cars have gotten to a place where they can put a little light in your mirror that shows that someone's in your blind spot, right? But we still don't have that. We still don't have that as human beings. So we, the way we find out is we often make mistakes. And so here's what I say about microaggressions. When that which is normal to me, and I, and I want to focus on the word normal, when that which is normal to me lands poorly on that which is normal to you. You and I end up in conflict. And we can reverse that, right? When that which is normal to you lands poorly on that which is normal to me, you and I end up in conflict. And a great example of this is, um, uh, I, always, I often share that if I drive into a neighborhood where I grew up in, I spent half of, most of my time in the black community, a lot of my time in the Latinx community, and both communities enjoy loud music traditionally. <laughs> um, but if I drive my car into a neighborhood where I know mostly white people live there, I turn my music down. Because that which is normal, something as simple as the way I like to listen to my music, that which is normal to me lands poorly on that which is normal to you. You and I end up in conflict. And so the, the, the decision to um, address a microaggression for me 
comes from how much value do I have, value and investment do I have in the relationship, right? So if it's someone that I am already in relationship with, I'm close to, they probably are not going to respond with defensiveness, right? But if it's someone that I'm running into in a grocery store, it's an automatic, like, I'm throwing my hands in the air, you're trying to call me racist, you're trying to call me sexist, you know, and that's not me, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And that's why I say I'm not talking about racism. I'm talking about the fact that that which is normal to you, landing poorly on that which is normal to me. And that's because you and I, whether we want to pretend on the 4th of July, waving these flags that we're all the same, you and I come from different cultures. And I say culture because you can have a Black person raised in a white family that has no idea what Black culture is, right? So it's, it's, not, so it's not a blanket that we can put on all people who look this way. It's people who live this way. It's a huge difference, huge difference. And so sometimes I will, in a moment where there, I've been microaggressed, I will say, wow, you, hey, you went all the way, you went all the way over here on me on that one. You know, like, oh my gosh, Kim, thank you for pointing that out. And then, if, like I said, if it's a stranger, it's a flip of a coin. Do I have the time? Do I have the energy? Do I feel like, do I feel like dealing with the potential that this person could throw their hands up and scream on being attacked, right? And that does happen. That, that does happen. And, and that points to the fact, I believe, that there are consequences for mm-hmm. that decision mm-hmm. and being able to weigh the mm-hmm. potential consequences before making that decision to respond or not Absolutely. respond. Uh, because you could, you could make a correction to a microaggression and you could lose your life, right? Like I, I will tell you, and I hate to admit this <laughs> um, while I'm being recorded, but I, my spirit, my heart, and my soul could not take watching the Sandra Bland video. So for a long time, I did not know what her police interaction was. Um, and when I finally watched it, um, I wanna say it might've been just two years ago that I watched it. I sat on my couch crying because she is demanding her right. She knows her rights, right? You hear her say, I have the right to smoke this cigarette. I don't have to put my cigarette out, right? That I have the right to, and I'm like, uh, and I'm cringing because I know that with, every correction that she gave, you know, I don't have to do this. The law says I have the right to do this. I knew that she was pissing this cop off more and more and more. Um, and I thought, and I just sat there with tears rolling down my face and I'm thinking, no, your life, your life, your life, your family, your, and I'm thinking that. Um, and so, and that Sandra Bland, again, is an extreme example of our day to day, I mean, I had something happen to me publicly yesterday that was nothing like what Sandra Bland went through. And I said to myself, am I willing to correct this person publicly? No, I am not. Because I have to protect, I have to protect my physical safety, my mental and emotional um, health, my, uh, my income for my family and um, my reputation, right? My, I have a public, I'm, my life is very outward facing. So I have to protect my reputation. I made, the, I made the decision not to correct the person. So calling out and calling in. Mm-hmm. So in your book, it's chapter four, I think mm-hmm. the King's English. Mm-hmm. You wrote, you're writing to this sister, this white sister who's been kidnapped. Mm-hmm. You say, you have to know we are doing everything in our power to find you and that mm-hmm. we will never give up. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's one of the most powerful call-ins mm-hmm. that you could ever have. 
mm-hmm. somebody who values you so much that you you won't give up on them. Mm-hmm. So can you mm-hmm. talk about the difference in calling out and calling in and the power of calling in? Yeah, I think so. Here's here's my heart's response to that question. I calling out feels like what's most important to me is correcting you, right? Correcting the semantics, correcting the behavior. What's most important is correcting you. And maybe even, we're going to add a little sprinkle here, maybe even shaming you, shaming you so much so that I think you will learn your lesson. But that's, but that's not actually what happens. Like when I think about the people that killed Ahmaud Aubrey. And I think about them sitting in a jail cell day after day, their hearts have not changed. Their minds have not changed. They haven't written, reached out to their family and friends back home or in their communities and said, wow, my heart was filled with hatred when I did this. I was filled with panic and fear when I did this, right? There's, they're sitting there because that's the consequence for their actions. And so I get mad when I see things like this because I'd rather somebody pay someone to go into that cell every day and talk about humanity and race and class and safety and dignity, right? Every single day. And so when you call somebody in, you're saying what I value most is my relationship with you. I value my connection to you. I value you learning more about me because if you have offended me and you're not, and again, I'm, I don't do this work because of the people with the torches and chanting like, you know, all these, all these, uh, these epithets, right? I do this because I want to connect human beings to other human beings. So when you have offended me and there is value and investment in a relationship with you, the fact that you've offended me says, wow, we're not as close as I thought we were, or wow, there's something about my story that you don't know. And that gives me the opportunity to sit down and say, here, you know, I think of an, I say extreme Alexis, but this is Really, it just was a normal day. I think about sitting in the Target parking lot and I was sitting in the handicap space waiting on my partner to come out. And a white woman came out of the Target with her husband and they were also in a handicap parking space. And, and as she approached the car, and it was a beautiful sunny day, I had my windows cracked, I had my moonroof open, I had my sunshades on and I was just sitting there taking the sun in. And it was just beautiful. And as she approached the car, she said, well, Huh, she certainly isn't handicapped. And I started weeping. I said, how do you know from looking at somebody from the collarbone up that they're not handicapped? How do you know? And given that you made this judgment, you also felt entitled to say that out loud. Like you, not only did you think it, you said it out loud. And so I was so, and I have a lot of practice. I have a lot of practice, years and decades of practice of being um, black. So I'm used to the things that come at me that have to do with race. I've only been um, in a body that has a disability for six years. So I have very little experience. (laughs) Um, And so that moment just set my heart on fire in the worst way um, that someone, another human being who's clearly struggling, right? Like they're in a handicapped parking space, would look at someone that's just sitting in their car. They're just sitting in their car and make such a strong judgment about them. Um, and so that, uh, I'm not talking about those moments, right? I didn't have a chance to jump out of the car and show her 
that I had to be cut in five different places and screws and staples are in my foot and plates, right? I didn't have the opportunity to, to share more of my story with her. Those are not the instances I'm talking about, but the ones where you have the opportunity to say, uh-oh, there's something about my story that you don't know because you wouldn't have said or done that um, had you known. I want to ask you about your, your DEI work, uh, the workshops you do, and in workshops that I've been in, uh, typically in workplaces or with organizations I volunteer for, there's sometimes a sense uh, from the white people, and myself included at, at one point, um, that, oh, I'm really uncomfortable here, but I'm going to do this workshop, and then I'm going to be comfortable again, you know? And I've learned from from reading some of your work and talking with other folks on the podcast that it's really about being comfortable in your discomfort. Is that an accurate way to say it? Because it's not it's not necessarily going to resolve as much as we would like it to. Can you say a little more about that? Sure. And it always for me, um, I was just sharing this a little bit with Alexis, is that it, for me, it always goes back to culture. Right. And um, I will tell you. I don't, I can probably count on both my hands here, how many white people I've talked to that know what the collective white culture is about. Like, I feel, I feel super safe saying to you, Sam, that, that a lot of black people like listening to loud music. I feel super safe saying that. And, and I'm not, I'm not safe saying all black people like to live, right. But white people struggle to, to name the things, whether they seem positive or negative, right? That um, they have in common with other white people, right? I, listen, the more creative your hairstyle can get, the better you feel as a black person. That's something I can say safely. I can safely say that about a lot of black people, right? And so when we talk about white culture, we don't realize that, and we don't have to talk about race. We can talk about anything that as a culture, a lot of white people are practiced and well rehearsed in not being uncomfortable at all costs, doing whatever you have to do to maintain a sense of comfort, whatever that is, right? Like I've literally watched, I mean, the most greatest example I can give um, Sam of this was I was, we were watching the news and, and I hate that I'm giggling to myself, but I was, I'm giggling out of shock that I'm still shocked that I heard this. Uh, we were watching the news years ago after the country music festival shootings and I think Las Vegas and a woman's husband, a white woman's husband was murdered. Like someone she had been married to for over, I think 40 years. And, and they said, you know, how will you, how, will, how are you doing? And how will you get past this? How will you heal? And she said, well, tomorrow's a new day, you know, he's, he's no longer with us and tomorrow's a new day. So, and I, and I remember thinking to myself, I remember, I remember jumping off the couch, like, what did she just say? Like, I remember thinking, even in the face of the death of your spouse, you are willing at all costs to make sure that I seem fine. Your Sam is fine. Alexis is fine. We're all fine. There's nothing wrong. We're all comfortable. Life is okay. And I'm like, your husband was just murdered. And when y'all woke up yesterday, that was not in your plan. And, and, and the only thing you came up with was tomorrow's a new day. He's gone. Like what? Wait a minute. What? I want, I wanted to pause and reach into the screen and say, excuse me, lady, I want to give you permission to be human right now. 
it is okay that you might be sad or upset or or anything neg fill in the blank with negative emotion anything negative because your spouse of 40 something years has has been murdered it's okay for you to not be okay right and so i so when you then talk about things that have literally been made out to be topics that are off limits race sex class politics etc if your system has been trained that it's not safe to talk about these things. Of course, your system goes into fight or flight, right? And a lot of times it comes off as fight. And so people say and write and do things like, why don't you just get over it? Someone wrote to me uh, just last week on LinkedIn and said, why don't you just get over it? You know, we're all Americans and it doesn't matter the color of your skin, blah, 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 and this person is white. Why don't you just get over it? I thought to myself, I wish I could. I wish there was a day where I didn't have to think about race. I really do. Um, and so I, so the, and what's unfortunate, Sam, is by the time we reach adulthood and we have these practices formulated and, and hardened, like they are firm inside of us, it's really hard for us to change those. It's hard to feel comfortable doing something that you've been not only socialized to feel uncomfortable doing, but you there are people, there are people, um, whether they're my coaching clients or people attending workshops, they will say to me, Kim, my parents told me, they used words and said, it's not okay to talk about race. It's racist to talk about race. And so how then can we ask employees where we're probably least comfortable, right? We're not sitting in with our best friend or our significant other. We're attending these workshops with our colleagues who we probably don't feel 100% authentic around. And we're engaging in these deep conversations about something we've been told not to talk about. How can we expect? And then, and then what happens, Sam? Going back to Alexis's point, the white folks in the room that are uh, uncomfortable are judged for their discomfort. But again, and, and they're judged as racist, right? But again, when that which is normal to you lands poorly on that which is normal to me, you and I end up in conflict. It is normal for a lot of white folks to be uncomfortable talking about race. That's just normal, right? When we say the word racism, we, if I can give you a short definition, we think of intentional meanness, intentional meanness, right? We think of the Ku Klux Klan. They have intentionality and they're very mean, right? Um, but most of these interactions are in the subconscious and are not intentional. And so we can move away to talking about that, which is normal. It's powerful when you listen to a white person that's had an encounter, right? They married somebody of a different race or their kid married somebody of a different race and they got grandkids, you know, that are different races, you know, and they talk and they start revealing their own story. And they, it's so beautiful when they have the courage to say, I sat around the dinner table and my parents did not let us talk. I mean, they literally slapped us if we talked about X, Y, and Z. That is a powerful and vulnerable place. And if, if someone is willing to share that with you, that is a gift. That is a gift that builds a bridge between you and me that bring us into authentic relationship. And that's, that's the goal. That's the goal. Kimberly, Yolanda Williams, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Sam and Alexis, for having me. This is beautiful. It was wonderful talking with you. That's Kimberly Yolanda Williams. 
She is an educator, a diversity, equity, and inclusion administrator and consultant, and the author of the book, Dear White Woman, Please Come Home. You can find out more about her book and her workshops on her website, engagingacrossdifference.com. That's engagingacrossdifference.com. Thanks for listening to Well, That Went Sideways. We produce new episodes twice a month. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts and on our website, sidewayspod.org. We also have information on our guests and links to more conflict resolution resources at the website. That's sidewayspod.org. Our production team is Mary Zinn, Jess Rao, Norma Johnson, Alexis Miles, Aliyah Thobani, and me, Sam Fuqua. Our theme music is by Mike Stewart. We produce these programs in Colorado on the traditional lands of the Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute nations. To learn more about the importance of land acknowledgement, visit our website, sidewayspod.org. And this podcast is a partnership with the Conflict Center, a Denver-based nonprofit that provides practical skills and training for addressing everyday conflicts. Find out more at conflictcenter.org.